Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. Hootie who to you? Hootie who to you too? Or can you say it a little bit more like uh, you remember hearing it on the radio? Hootie who? There you go. Hootie who? <laughs> a pleasant hootie who to all our listeners out there. Why am I even saying hootie who? What? Why is this? It has to do with our guest this week, who is Mark Thompson, which our listeners will know from the Mark and Brian show. He has written a memoir. It's called Don't Bump the Record, Kid, My Adventures with Mark and Brian. Mark and Brian were a huge part of my life. We loved this morning show in L.A. They were wacky and off the cuff and uh, highly entertaining. And so now he kind of spills the beans, so to speak. They came to Los Angeles from Alabama. So it was 1987. They came to KLOS and... They hit the ground running. They were huge. They were the number one morning show. And man, Mark has stories to tell. Of course, because you're on a radio show, you get to talk to celebrities and interview them. And uh, that gives you stories to write about, which he says a lot in the book. (laughs) He always says, this will make a good story in a book whenever I write it, as he writes in his book. It's very meta. Mark is highly entertaining, and we're, of course, a radio guy, so we're thrilled to have him on the show. Some of these stories I'm going to just cut out, and so to get all the stories, Holly, how would one find that? You will find outtakes from our interview with Mark Thompson on our social media at WDDIM Podcast and on our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make Podcast. We have a new episode every Friday, so please subscribe, like, give those reviews. We love it all. But right now we have Mark Thompson in our virtual studio, so let's get right into it. This is Mark Thompson of Mark and Brian fame on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Oh, look Good morning. Good morning. I'm going to start by showing my, I don't know if you could see the photo, but this was 1991. Oh, wow. This was at the UA Theater in Woodland Hills. My friends and I had just gotten out of uh, seeing L.A. Story, and um, we actually, after it, you know, it was a feel-good movie, and we felt great about it. And actually, as I left, I told my friends, I just said, love you, guys, love you. <laughs> and, and sure enough, like, then as we left the theater, there's you and my friend who somehow kept the portable camera on him at all times smart uh, captured that moment so that was really nice well very nice i i, uh, I don't uh, obviously remember that particular event why not posted it. how yeah, dare you i know it's one of the one of the number one questions i enjoy as i move through to the latter part of my life and career uh, i'll run into listeners uh, these days and they'll go you know we met back in 1987. You were looking at televisions in the Target. And then my favorite question is, do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I don't. I'm sure it happened and I'm sure I enjoyed it, but I, I don't remember that specific moment. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> so now you guys with this podcast, you, uh, you relive and embrace the 80s and some of the 90s. Is that it? Whatever we like to embrace. We'll embrace anything. What the, yeah. we Call it what difference does it make, basically, because if something catches our attention, like Mark Thompson has a book out, it's like, oh, yes, we want him on the show. I'm sure that might have been the same reason, you know, for your show as well. When I saw that, I did two basic formats of music in my radio career. The first was top 40 until 87 when I moved to Los Angeles and I worked on a classic rock radio station but 
in the 80s primarily from uh, the beginning of the 80s until 87 i was doing top 40 i was doing afternoons at y102 fm in montgomery alabama and it was a hot top 40 radio station only the only the best best music y102 and fm in the south it's not the case in L.A., but in the South, we had 100,000 watts. So we covered <laughs> four states. And at that time, when I got to Y102, it was 82 when I was there until 85. And Michael Jackson could not have been hotter. Hall and Oates, Elton John, Stevie Wonder uh, to a degree. But then you got your fun uh, Kaja Goo Goo. And and you're it was a great time to be on the air because music sounded it sounded like pop music should sound. <laughs> and I really I did enjoy going to work each day when we arrived in L.A., the big act in town as far as morning radio was Rick D's. And at that time, Rick had been on the air for about eight years. And the entertainment business is unlike many but in the entertainment business, you know, you can be hot for a while and then people's just like anything, people have heard it and they're ready for something different. And, you know, Rick was the greatest setup punchline guy I ever heard as far as morning entertainment. He had the best writers, the best voice actors, the best. And then Mark and Brian, by no design of our own, we were completely different. We didn't do setup and punchline. We did uh, a scenario that was funny and it didn't have jokes, uh, but yet it was entertaining. And people were really attracted to that because it was something they had never heard, including us. We, had, we were just doing what we thought might be fun. It wasn't a big scheme. It was just different by virtue of it came out of us for the first time. So I remember you guys doing miniature theater and uh, oh sure, you would crack up during the whole thing. And the, you know, that was part of the fun. You mentioned you hated your, your laugh, but I loved yeah. the whole, I, you stretched out this, what should have been a 15 second joke into right. a 15 minute bit. And that was part of the yes. joy of Mark and Brian. So as long as we have permission from the ABC grunts, we're okay with it. We're going to go ahead and run it by you here and now. <laughs> I got news for you, pal. Yeah. We're ABC Grunts. <laughs> okay? <laughs> gotta be what we are. We gotta be us. We got to be us. Yeah. Mm. We're paid for this. Yeah, I should have. <laughs> Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Miniature Theater. I'm glad you can make them today. Let me come over here. This is sort of a Walter Cronkite Brinkton. <laughs> a Brinkton of Walter Cronkite. <laughs> Livy, did you hear this? Yes. All right. You, you did hear it? Yes. Did, did you understand it? Did you? Yes. She hated it, I guess is what she's saying. All right, Livy, yeah. stand here. We'll see if we can entertain you this time. Stand right okay. there. Here we go. Okay. Today's feature is entitled... What was it? Shortcomings. Today's feature is entitled Shortcomings. We open as a husband having domestic problems goes to his home and has a terrible argument with his wife. He has a plan. He knows what he must do. Let's pick it up here, shall we? Sit back, relax, and enjoy... What was it again? Shortcomings. Shortcomings. <laughs> There'd be shortcomings. Shortcomings. Uh, 
I can tell you where that came from. My first morning show was at WSGA in Savannah, Georgia. Beautiful town, shitty radio station. <laughs> uh, in fact, this was the very beginning of the 80s. Uh, WSGA was an AM and music-based AM stations were dying or dead at that point. And this was my first morning show. And it was where I wanted to be. I wanted to be doing mornings, but I had to get used to taking a nap. And I had never, I mean, as an infant, I napped, but as an adult, it felt strange, odd and weird to climb in bed at two in the afternoon to go to sleep. And I couldn't, I just couldn't get sleepy because it wasn't a part of my chemistry. And the local uh, PBS station would play Masterpiece Theater on television, which was a three-hour, you know, drawn-out thing of theater. And it took forever. And so I thought, they really, sh they, they could put this in two minutes. They really, they, they just cut out all that crap and got right down to it. They could do that. And so the concept of miniature theater was was born, where we would take the piece and just shorten it and give it to you in in two minutes or three, which turned into 15. It, it was a lot of fun because we played the classical music and Brian had a wonderful voice for it. And you're right. We would take a joke and then present it in a theatrical way with our noises, noses stuck up in the air. <laughs> it's the opposite of top. You grew up with top 40 radio, which is basically don't bore us, get to the chorus. We want these three minute songs, bang, bang, bang. We want to play all these hits. I'm sure, you know, you love Michael Jackson. I'm sure you played him every 40 minutes, uh, no long, no shorter than, or no longer. Uh, you know, we, we need to play Michael constantly. When Thriller came out, it was three to four songs, an hour of yeah. his, it seemed. You couldn't lose by playing Michael Jackson. It's true. But it was also, as a, a radio personality, it was one of the battles that I fought early on in that the clock, the format, those of you that don't know what that is, it's literally on a piece of paper, the face of a clock drawn out. And it shows you at five minutes after the hour, you play an A song, follow that up with a recurrent, follow that up with a C, back to an A. And that was the format. And I had to fight management of the radio station to, I don't want to play 12 songs an hour. I want to play eight and try to be funny, try to be a personality, take calls. And I need more time than 30 seconds to speak. And it was a battle at the beginning. But once they started to see the ratings climb, they were a lot more amenable to me not playing that many songs they encourage the well go ahead do your do your fun thing they seem <laughs> to be liking it and the other thing that really i never understood and it still happens not only radio television in any form of entertainment at one point i had some heat as a jock and so i would get hired at this new job and i would go and yet they hired me because of what i was doing but then i would get there and they didn't want me to do it anymore and so that was when the idea of having a contract and having lawyers, so it would be completely spelled out. This is what I do. If you don't want that, then don't sign it and don't hire me. Did you ever have a consultant try and rework what you were doing? Yeah, later, you know, for Mark and Brian, when we hit the air in 87, well, it, it started in Birmingham in, in 85, we, we were number one 
very, very quickly. And when you're number one, you don't take meetings. You don't talk to anybody who can tell you how to do it. What are you going to tell me? I'm number one. There's nowhere to go but down. It's when we went down, when we were no longer number one, that you take those meetings with people that supposedly are going to help fix the problem. It, it, and it goes back to what I said to you guys at the top of this. There wasn't a problem. We were still doing the very same thing that we had done from day one. It was simply that people had heard it and they were ready for something different, something else, something new. Were you looking to, I don't know if evolve is the right word, but just kind of, okay, we've done, we've talked about these topics. What's, what is, what else is our, you, you mentioned like you had a 40 year old man with a family as your ideal listener. That's kind of, you know, mm -hmm. radio programming 101, like who, who is listening? So did you kind of ask that question as you moved along? Like, who is this guy and what is he into now? We're older. This 40-year-old man is still 40. Now, is that something? I'm no, sure. I, I, I get your question. I, 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 as an individual, and therefore my participation in the radio show changed as I changed because I was always very big on sharing stories from my life, especially, and you brought my imaginary guy up, and I'll explain that. The audience that classic rock goes after is the demographic is men 25 to 54. So I went right in the middle. My guy's 40. He's probably married and he's got a couple of kids. More than likely, he works a blue collar job. He, he, he's a roofer. He lays bricks. He drives trucks, whatever it may be. But the one thing that he and I have in common is that we're both idiots and we're afraid of our wife. And so whenever I did something stupid involving my kids that I tried to keep my wife from learning about, that would be a story that I would tell. The story had to be about two minutes. It had to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And when I told that story, I told it to that guy. And I can't tell you how well that worked because to this day, when I meet somebody, they will recite some dumb thing that I did and just crack up and they act as though we're best friends, which I love that. I'm glad that they feel that way. I, of course, have never met them. And in some cases, don't even remember that particular story. I think the evolution of myself, as I said, as I grew as a father and a husband and a person, I made sure that the show reflected that growth in me. Uh, whether that be positive or negative, whatever the case may be. But the show itself, the kind of comedy that we enjoyed doing, the kind of thing that we brought early when we first got to L.A., I don't think that that changed. In other words, maybe a, a consultant might have said, you know, you need to get back to quicker jokes. You know, do the punchline and the, the setup and the punchline. Do that stuff. And it just, it wasn't who I was and it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. So we did a variation of the same base of program, but as a person, I do think I grew and shared those, those things because the thing about radio, the thing about any form of entertainment, Johnny Carson once talked about this real life continues to happen. And, you know, 
it was very important that Brian and I be on the air every morning at 6 a.m. And, and, and do it until 10. But in real life, I buried my sister, my mother, and my father in a, an 18-month period. And they were all the way back in the South, so I would fly and deal with a funeral of the people who raised me and then fly back to L.A., go on the air, and try to act as though everything was fine. But I didn't do that. I talked about how difficult it was to do what I just did. And I was emotional at times. And that was what I meant by sharing my life with these people. I found it to be very important because I didn't have a choice. I am not in the mood to come in here and tell jokes. So I'm going to tell you what I've really been doing. And I've gotten a great reaction because as I was going through these things, so have they, or they will, or they did. And they related to that. And I think liked the fact that I would be that transparent with them. Our job was to go in and have fun. We once had a guy ask us, he called and his question was, so do you guys, you have like a job in the afternoon or something? <laughs> and we said, well, well no, what, why do you ask? He goes, well, they, they don't actually pay you for this, do they? Because to him, it sounded like this giant party, which is good. That's what we wanted. But we were highly compensated for what we were doing, sir. So listen, thank you for asking. No. I don't have a paper route. I okay. do just this. Yes. I, my job in the afternoon is to prepare for tomorrow's show. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I talk about that in the book as well. I find that with any form of business, no matter what it may be, the very single hardest thing that anybody can do is to be consistent. And I said it in the book. It does you no good as a radio person or as a, a banker. It does you no good to be great on Tuesday and mediocre on Wednesday. You need to be great every single day. And there'll be changes in each day, but that's what, what life is. And I had a system that I followed. And that system began the moment I got off the air for that show. I began looking at and working toward the next day's show. It never stopped. And by the time I had gone through my checkpoints and my system, I would load my briefcase and put it beside my desk so that the next morning when I coffeed up, I grabbed my briefcase and in that briefcase was an entire show ready to go. I was never not ready because the nightmare for me as a talk radio personality, even though we were on classic rock, we didn't play music. We just talked. And the, the nightmare would be to go on the air and have a 12 minute talk break and have nothing to say. Did Brian operate the same way at that point? No. No. <laughs> you know, I also talk in the book that he and I were, I think, uniquely well-received because we both brought a different talent to the table. I was a seasoned radio entertainer. I came from radio. And so I knew how to put together, prepare, and present a radio program entertainment-based and I knew the ins and outs of how to do that. Brian had no knowledge of radio. The first Mark and Brian show was his first time to ever speak into a radio microphone. So his system 
was like he primarily did the voices on the comedy bits that we did. So he would come in and pour over that script. And while I was doing the other parts of the show, he was pouring over that. And, you know, at one point, I kind of got to the point of, uh, hey, dude, that comedy bit's going to last four minutes. I've still got three hours and 56 minutes to kill over here. Help me out. But the, the, the fact of the matter is we each had different talents. But when those talents came together, the sum was greater than its parts. Talking with Mark Thompson of Mark and Brian fame. He has written a book, Don't Bump the Record Kid. And we are going to bump him right now and take a break. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're back on the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest, Mark Thompson. It seems like you did a lot of behind the scenes work. And then Brian kind of was like the uh, the homecoming queen. He, you know, he arrives. He's the funny one. Yeah, he was the <laughs> the way that I kind of equated it because I felt this way. Uh, I was the the quarterback of the thing. And Brian was the superstar receiver. And I can tell you, because he came from improvisational comedy, basically their entire focus is getting up on stage and making stuff up as they go. And Brian's superpower was taking an inanimate object, like one of the stories that I told this past weekend, uh, we had a general manager in the building with us, the GM from the other radio station in the building, and he had a toupee. And we were having fun talking about the fact, because it was one of the worst toupees <laughs> I've ever seen. And we started talking about it. And at one point during the morning, Brian, I looked over at the console, and Brian had the phone receiver, and he was waving it. He wanted me to take a call. And so I took it, and I said, who's this? And Brian said, this is uh, George's toupee. <laughs> and he then, with no script, he made it up as he went. 
I had a 45 minute conversation with a man's hairpiece and Brian did these things so well uh, with, he would always attach a really funny voice. I mean, how would a man's toupee sound? Mm -hmm. He would attach that and then just make things up as he went. And it was an amazing superpower to sit there and watch him do that knowing that he had nothing in front of him, no script, no written words, just off the top of his head. And it was an amazing, amazing ability. So was there trust in that? Like it was like a juggle, like you could throw something at him and you knew, oh, he will throw something back at me. That's amazing. Yeah. There were times when we did have a script, you know, and it was written, Mark, Brian, Mark, Brian, <laughs> he would leave that. He would completely go because something came up and he would go there. I would put my finger on the next line and hold it there because at some point he would run out of stuff on his vamp and he would look at me like, get me back. And I, <laughs> I would just say the next line and he would find his place and pick it back up. But there was complete trust. Uh, I was hoping that he wouldn't follow the script and that he would just go off somewhere. Mm -hmm. And while the problem with doing that is that sometimes it would go too far. The standard in, in radio entertainment, the standard two minute rule does apply. You're supposed to do comedy bits in two minutes, maybe three, anything above that. Because they always say, don't ever give the audience a reason to leave. And an overly long comedy bit that becomes if it's too long it becomes unfunny because it's just so long i'm sure you guys have watched saturday night live and they'll start with a funny bit and a funny concept and it goes for 10 minutes and after that you're laughed out and and you're done uh so i i did worry about that a lot of times i would give him the you know let's let's wrap this up let's go but no i had full trust especially when he left the script i knew straight was coming I think people stay also because they want to know what's next. They want to know what's coming. So they'll stick it out. Yeah. In some cases, but you know, that's a hardcore listener. That's somebody who adores every word that comes out of our mouth. There are also fringe listeners who are just looking around trying to find something that entertains them for this moment. It's kind of like you flip around the radio. And as soon as you land on a song that you love, you'll stay. As soon as the song's over, you go. Or you might listen to a little bit of the next song. If you don't like it, you're gone. Same thing here. If you get bored, if you're a fringe listener, if you if the bit's too long, a song they don't like, they're gone. So you do whatever you can to try to keep them there. For me, and for a lot of radio personalities, it now it's not Johnny Carson. Everyone mentions Letterman. As you touched on in the book, he had a huge influence on you as well. It was beyond huge. I said in the book, I was in Montgomery at that time, working that top 40 job, number one. And every night uh, I would wrap up by smoking pot and watching Tom Snyder's interview show. And I loved it. I loved Tom. Uh, I thought it was good. And one night Tom wasn't on. They had some variety show and I'm pissed. And the host came out and said, "We this being our first show, we did some research to find out what people really want to see on television. And we found out that overwhelmingly, America wants to see two pieces of metal being welded together. <laughs> and throughout the rest of the show, the entire show, there was a welder behind David welding metal together. And it was the <laughs> dumbest thing I'd ever looked. And I couldn't stop watching it. And David is a, a prime example of what I just said. It does you no good to be amazing on Tuesday and mediocre. 
he was never mediocre because the crap he was doing, nobody had ever done it. Case in point, every year, because he was a big friend of Jay Thomas. Jay was, when I first got to LA, Jay was doing mornings on Power 106. And Jay went on to become an actor and so forth. And, and Jay, David loved Jay. And at some point, and this is an example of how stupid stuff became that they did, that David did. I guess this was born out of tradition, but every Christmas, Jay Thomas would come back and there was a Christmas tree on the set. And on top of the tree was a giant uncooked meatball. It was sitting on top of the tree and Jay and Dave would take turns throwing an NFL football, trying to be the one to knock the meatball off. Now it doesn't have a point of any kind. It is absolutely ridiculous. And I couldn't stop watching it. David Letterman hit me at a point in my career where I was trying to be entertaining for four hours uh, but I was doing standard, traditional type of radio entertainment. And David showed me that there is a place for things that are completely ridiculous, dumb, and have no point. But as long as you think it's funny, then the audience will pick that vibe up. And I started following that. And he taught me that. David still, to this day, he's an icon in my world. And I'm not the only one. Everybody, it was must watch television. And I do think that when Dave moved, uh, moved to the 1130 on CBS, it was still a good show, but it wasn't that. It was just ridiculous 1230 at night, mostly college kids watching, and it changed me as a radio entertainer. And doing something uh, idiotic, you got to meet David Letterman. Can you tell that story, please? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is this is interesting in many ways. I did a very David Letterman thing because of my fandom for the man. I was calling this NBC guy trying to get an interview with David. And the mistake that I made or the brilliance of what I did, I would call this NBC guy on the air live, uh, not taped, live. And the audience listened to him tell me no. 15 to 20 times when I would request this, this interview. So like anybody would do, I was frustrated and I decided to do what most anybody would. I was going to package myself in a box and ship myself to him. So I got a giant cardboard box and I cut a hole out on the top and two holes on the side for my arms. I put a giant mailing label, David Letterman, 30 Rock, NBC, New York. And I media covered the whole thing. Every local station was there to watch this, this dumb thing I was doing. And I got on the airplane, flew to New York, got out of the cab and looked up at 30 Rock. And it, it hit me what I had done. I have mailed myself to David Letterman to get the interview. And I don't have an interview scheduled. I walked into the lobby. The box was gone by this point. Joke was over. <laughs> Let's get the interview. <laughs> and I called the guy and I told him what I had done. And his response was the typical moments of silence until he said, oh, my God. OK, stay right there. I'm coming down. He came down to the lobby. He got me. He brought me upstairs and he 
put me behind the cameras in the camera pit, they call it. He said, stay here, watch the show. Don't do anything. Don't say anything. Do not just don't move. I'll be back. And so I sat and watched my idol 10 feet from me do his show. I wasn't even sure if it was funny because you're, you're in that place where you just laugh at everything because you're not listening. I was there. I was watching him. I'm the, he's 10 feet. I could get the interview, but I was good. I stayed where I was. Show was over. The guy came back and he said, follow me. And I had my little a cassette recorder with my microphone. And he took me through two double doors into this very small hallway. And he pushed me up against the wall and he said, okay, listen, in about five minutes, those double doors are going to open. An NBC page is going to bring David through there. This is the only hallway that he can get back to his office. You are not allowed to approach him, but if he comes over to you, that's off. Do your thing. So I got over by the wall, the doors opened. I immediately pushed record. My hand was shaking. My mouth was bone dry. And there comes Dave and he's walking down the hallway and he looked over and saw me and he started walking toward me. So I raised the mic to my mouth and he walked up and he said, hi. I then said, keep in mind, I'm faced with David Letterman. This is the moment I'm going to get the interview. And out of my mouth comes, hi, Paul. (laughs) Yeah. I called him Paul. And luckily, David could tell that I was absolutely terrified. He said, don't worry, I answered to both names. And he went on to realize how nervous I was. He didn't know who I was or why I was there. But he threw some jokes out because he said, what's your name, sir? And I said, Mark Thompson. I work for Y102 in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, and I said, do you know Montgomery? He says, of course I do. I have a weekend house there, you know, kind of a weekend place. So I'm there all the time. We should get together, maybe have a beer. It was short. It was quick. But I got the interview. And when it was over, I called the radio station. They were waiting for my call. And I told them that I got it and I would play it the next day at 5 p.m. And when I left Montgomery for this stunt, I was an up and coming radio personality. When I landed, there were listeners there. The media was there covering it. And when I landed, I was no longer just a radio personality. I was a local celebrity. This worked, but, and I say it in the book with the caveat, yes, I didn't accept no, but this was a gimmick. And I left Montgomery with no interview. This could have so easily failed. And if I had come back with no interview, I would have been the joke. So yeah, that one's one that sticks in my mind. And it was huge for me that I I refused the word no or the but I never thought past what if I don't get it? What if I don't get the interview? Which chances were strong I wasn't going to. And I said it in the book. I wish I could remember the gentleman's name at NBC that put me in that hallway and made that happen because I would like to thank him for preventing me from looking like an idiot that I so closely came to. Maybe through social media, when the book is widely read, somebody's going to know this guy who who was working there at that time, and he'll reach out to you. I would love to know his name. He was older at that time, and the poor man was simply doing his job. I think David must have said, I don't do interviews. Leave me alone. I'm I'm working too hard on this show. No interviews. So he was simply doing, but I I forced his head. That, That 
oh my God, I'll never forget the fear that was in his voice when he realized it was downstairs. Well, he did great. He responded perfectly. And probably you would have had it not worked out with the interview. You would have had another story to tell and it would have been maybe not as funny. Yeah, but you know, the well, the interview, I, it was literally 60 seconds long. I guess my goal was to just get his voice on my recorder. And I clearly was not ready for the interview because I didn't have any questions, but it worked. It worked. And that is a big moment in my career, but it could have so easily gone badly. You told a lot of stories, some of your favorite personalities, some of your favorite celebrities, actors. You were on the air for so many years. You had many more than you than you chose for the book, but some of the really funny ones, the Gino Vanelli and Tina Louise, please tell one of them. You choose because those I was in stitches. <laughs> I can't possibly tell the Gino. <laughs> that thing is just vile. But I will tell you another one. And if you want to hear that, the only reason I hold out from the Gino story is not that I'm embarrassed because I'm not. I, you know, I crapped in my pants while having dinner with Gino. Who doesn't? <laughs> but it's so long to really get the point out. But let me tell this one because this one really stood out to me. We were about to have Lionel Richie on the show. And I'm a big fan. Who wasn't? I mean, he had some of the greatest ballads ever written and performed, this man. And I had a story that I wanted to tell him because I thought he might respond to it. When I was a kid, my parents would pile my sister and myself into the car and we would take this six hour drive down to my aunt's farm, my mother's sister. And it was a working farm. It was wonderful and, and, and great to be down there. I'd never seen anything quite like that. To watch a cow eat is I could watch it. I'm not kidding for hours. There's something about it. But what I would do is my mother would give me a couple of dollars and I would walk the mile up the country road to the Torch Cafe. And it was this little gas station, mostly for truckers, because the, this was the, the main road that left Alabama and took you into Florida. So the truckers rode on this road all the time. So they would stop into the torch to get gas, get some repairs done and get a bite to eat. They had a small diner there and I would go up there and I would sit in the only corner booth they had and I would eat a cheeseburger, fries and a Coke and watch the truckers drive by. And uh, Lionel was there on the show. He did two hours. I can't explain to you how amazing it is to watch a musical artist that is at the top of their game, three feet away from you, performing these great songs. And I told him that story off the air. It was off the air. I hated that. I wish it had been on. I told him that story because he's from Tuskegee. That's why I told it. And the torch is in Tuskegee. And he looked at me and he said, are you messing with me? I said, no. I mean, you're from Tuskegee. I thought you might know the torch. And he sat back realizing my story was genuine. And he said, when I was in college at Tuskegee Institute, I wasn't a very good student. And I was also in the Commodores and we were struggling. So it wasn't a great time. Nothing seemed to be working. And every Sunday morning, I would go to the torch. It was the only time I had to myself to just relax and just kind of unwind, think about the past week and look at the week coming up. And I was sitting at the torch and it was a beautiful day. 
and I was relaxed and sipping coffee. And I thought to myself, this is, this is just a wonderful time. This is, it's so compared to my week. This is just so easy. And he took out his notebook and he wrote, this is easy like Sunday morning, which became his hit easy. And he said, I wrote that song sitting in that same corner booth where you ate your cheeseburger. I could have never known that that would have come out of his mouth. And I was pissed that it wasn't on the air, but those are from his mouth to my ears. He did. And that was one of the greatest stories I think I'd heard. And it wasn't on the air. Another name dropped. Apparently you have a, a relationship with Kevin Pollack. That's uh, <laughs> very endearing, I guess, because he wrote a really sweet intro and it's uh, very touching. Sweet. sweet. I've never seen a guy write the forward to a book and he talks mostly about himself. <laughs> that's very Kevin. It's, it's, look, it's hard to put into words. Kevin and I relate on some level and I don't even know what it is. Kevin is one of labeled as one of the greatest 100 stand-ups in history. And the guy is amazing and mesmerizing to watch him do. In fact, one night I went down the rabbit hole on YouTube and I stumbled across a vintage clip of Kevin doing stand-up back in the 80s. And I was cracking up at how good it was. And then I realized this dude's my buddy. You tend to forget when you're friends with someone how good they are at what they do. But Kevin is one of those guys that I can call him at any time, day or night, for whatever it is, and Kevin will be there. He'll bitch about it, but he shows up. He is a dear mm -hmm. friend and I've also done this with him before, and maybe comedians do this, but I would call him and I would be in the middle of building something like a little thing I wanted to do, whether it was on the radio or a live thing. And I would call him and I would run it by him and he would say, okay, I like the beginning and the, and the end, the middle is crap. Let's work on that. He would spend five minutes, give me three or four punches. I would finish it up done. And that's really who he is. Kevin loves the art of laughter. And I have picked his brain on many, but my, my grandest times with him are just sitting around chatting about life and things and whatever. And for the record, and if he ever denies this, he's lying. Kevin and I have known each other for 30 years and we have gone to dinner maybe a hundred times. Kevin has never once paid and he doesn't even do that fake reach for his wallet like he's going to pay. We both know he will not pay, period. Well, you have an understanding. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> it now wasn't verbal. I never agreed to shit. He just doesn't pay. Apparently, it was a game of chicken. The check is there. You're both staring yeah. at like who, whoever yeah. reaches for it first is going to pay for the rest of their lives. <laughs> I tell you what, for you, I'm I'm probably going to go at some point this month. I'm going to go down to this wonderful, you may know it, Nate and Al's, a, a deli oh, yeah. in Beverly Hills. We're go I'm going to take Kevin. We're going to go. And when the check arrives, I'm just going <laughs> to do this. And I'm going to see if he won't. 
he'll look at the check and then look back at me like, what are you doing? You're going to pay or not? So I'll see. I'll check it and I'll let you know what happened. We'd like I'm, to be in the corner with the camera. Right. <laughs> Come on. Hey, I'll buy your breakfast, not his. Well, this sounds like a, uh, a podcast. And, and apparently you are podcasting like everyone else. I left uh, Mark and Brian in 2012. My wife and I started doing a podcast. We've always had a rather fun banter about ourselves. And I thought that might be entertaining on the show. And, you know, we don't do it for profit. I did not involve myself in commercials for podcasts because it didn't make it, it pissed me off actually, because they step in and they go, you do commercials on your show. We'll provide the commercials and you do them and we'll take 50%. And I was like, no, you won't. I've never (laughs) heard of that. That's ridiculous. So I just don't make any money. I do it because I love talking into a mic and chatting with people like you and having a good time. So it's just for fun. We started out doing it five days a week. And then over time, I started doing a little bit of acting and I pulled back to once a week, but I enjoy it. It's for me. I do it for me because while I don't miss the grind of doing everyday radio, because it is a grind eight to 10 hours, some longer, some shorter. I don't miss that, but I will never ever get over the desire to put on a set of headphones and talk into a mic. Well, Linda sounds like she likes it too. And please tell her, I love her voice. There's something about her voice. That's just so, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I just like it. It strikes a chord with me. She is a Southern gal and she's never changed. She's lived in California for, you know, 27 years, 30, whatever it is. She's never changed. She is exactly who she is. And I did want to capture that because we are rude with each other. And uh, the crowd seems to get a kick out of that. And she's grown quite a bit. She was at the beginning, she was terrified to do it. In fact, one night I went up and she was crying. And this was before the podcast and she was in hysterics. I said, what's wrong? And she said, people on Twitter are really being mean to me. I'm not Brian. I'm not this. I'm not that. And I said, okay, look, first of all, I don't know why you're on Twitter. They're the rudest, meanest people, social media. They do and say things just to get a rise out of you. That's what they want. They want you to respond. I said, let me tell you something. I didn't ask you to do this podcast because you're a great radio person. I didn't ask you to do this because you're hysterical. I asked you to do it because you're my wife and nobody can talk to me the way you do. Do that. That's what I want. And that seemed to calm her. And she's done great. I mean, she she has her little things that she does each week when we do the podcast. And she did it for me. That's the most endearing thing. I was leaving and I still wanted to talk into a mic, but I'm like you guys, I got to have somebody to talk to. And she did it for me. And so I immediately just calmed her down saying, nobody's asking you to be those people. I'm asking you to be you. You do that and you'll be fine. The only time I get pissed at her in the middle of a show is when she's got her face glued to that chat room we have. And she's looking to see what people say. And she's not even listening to me. But yeah, we we do it because we enjoy it. We have a good time with it. At KLOS, you had the Mark and Brian giveaway. You got on the air. They got like some crappy, crappy gift. What were some of your favorites? For some reason, I remember they were crappy and they made me laugh, but I can't remember one of them. Oh, I remember quite a few of them. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. The, I mean, we would do things like the Mark and Brian shoehorn, which was a cheap piece of plastic that helped you get your shoe on. Um, we would give the Mark and Brian beanie weenies. We quite literally went to the grocery store and bought cans of beanie weenies and popped a Mark and Brian label. That's how shitty they were. But out of all of them, the one that was the absolute must have for listeners was the Mark and Brian Christmas snow globe. It was these two little shitty characters. It was Mark and Brian inside a Christmassy scene and you shake it up and the snow goes everywhere. People would sell their kids to get one of those. And our idea came from David Letterman. Do either of you remember at the very beginning of David, what he would give people who came on his show? No. Not coming to you? No. He would give them the David Letterman late night sponge. It was this little bitty block. It was about this big. And if you soak it in water, it becomes this giant sponge. I thought that was so stupid and so ridiculous. That's why we did that. And for those that bought the hardcover of my book, we only made 5,000 because that's all the paper we could get, that thicker stock paper. We made 5,000. They sold out. And each of the hardcovers came with the bookmark slash ruler. And it's very Mark and Brian. So because I did research. Uh, you may not believe this. Absolutely true. 100%. <laughs> Whenever the majority of people are reading a book, they get the urge to stop reading and measure something six inches or less. And so I put that ruler on the back of that, uh, and it's the holiday edition too. But what made it work is that I said, and I meant it, the only way to get the bookmark slash ruler is with the hardcover. And I kept my word. I've got so many people offering crazy amounts. I said, no, I told you, if you want the bookmark, you got to buy the shitty book. So that's the only way people could get it. And it sold out in days. Congratulations on that. You're self-publishing. I mean, I'm doing all the work. I want all the money. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. I appreciate that, Dave, because I was shocked. When I was writing the book, my plan was to submit to publishers and hopefully get somebody to say, we would like to publish your book. That was the plan. And then I read on the internet something that absolutely shocked me. The average deal that an author gets, like you guys, if you wrote a book and you were lucky enough to get the call, you as the writer get 7%. The publisher takes 93%. I'm not going to give anybody 93% of anything ever. I would rather not do it. I mean, I've never heard anything so just blatantly robbery. And so at that point, we self-published. And it has been a wondrous learning joy for me. Those of you that are interested, the hardcovers are gone. We sold them all. We do have the soft cover, or as my redneck wife keeps saying, the paperback. <laughs> we have we have the ebook for sale. And then the audio book is what a lot of people are after. I narrated it. We scored it with music in places. When I'm telling a story like Donnie Osmond was our very first in-studio guest and we had an earthquake. And Donnie, to, to calm all the girls, he sang on this keyboard, go away, little girl. 
we drop that clip <laughs> into the book. We do that several times. So you simply go to myadventureswithmarkandbrian.com, make your order. 100% of the proceeds from this book goes to the rescue and welfare of animals in Southern California. Beautiful. Wow. Having read the book, I still want to hear you narrate it because the stories, I can hear you in my head as I, or I heard you as I was reading the book, but I, I definitely had <laughs> to listen. <laughs> well, I will tell you, Holly, the one area when the producer and the engineer both, I finished it and they both said to me, my God, as you were recording that story, I could hear you go there. You actually were there. You went there. And so, Holly, you read the book. It's the story of when I gave Brian the birthday gift of being Bozo the Clown for a day. That is the single most entertaining thing I've ever witnessed. And apparently I went there as I recorded that part of that book. I relived it. I envisioned it. It was a part of me in that moment. So that story is there. And, and uh, the music director scored it with the funniest music you've ever heard. It's all a part of the audiobook. The audiobook we're very, very proud of. We've taken all, all of your time. Can I end it with a hootie who? What? Where did hootie who come from again? Please tell everyone. Hootie who, uh, I am the biggest fan of the old Andy Griffith show. And there was an episode where they were looking for the bad guy. He had busted out of jail. And so Gomer and Barney had gone into the woods down by the lake to hunt for the bad guy. And it was Gomer that was concerned, what if we get lost, Barney? And Barney said, well, we need to come up with a sign. And Gomer decided that it would be, and it was the dumb, they were standing right next to each other and doing that. I thought that was funny. I said it on the air one day and everybody started saying hootie hoo. <laughs> Including including me, I'm, yes. I'm guilty. So thank yeah, thank you for ruining my life for for. Dave, I say to you, who do you, my friend? Oh, very sweet. Thank you so We're much. We're gonna play that. We should close our episodes with that. Yeah, do it. Listen, guys, thank you so much for the for the plug on the book. Oh, congratulations! Since you've already sold out of the hardcovers. Yeah, you know, there's Bono, there's Dylan. They got books out, but Mark Thompson, man, come on. <laughs> Right up there. Right up, yeah, right up there. <laughs> uh, thank you, guys. I really appreciate the time. Thank you thank for spending you. so much time with us. And thank you for sharing that laugh right there. That's that's the laugh that we remember. It's a good one. No matter what you think of it, it's a great one. Well, thank you. And as I said, I know that I'm known for it, and I don't. it doesn't bother me when I'm doing it. It's when I listen back at it. I just don't want to, I don't want to hear it, but. I, I embrace it. It's the one I have. And, and I when I'm laughing, I mean it. Good to know. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thank yeah, you guys. take care. Thank you, Mark. See you. Okay. Mark Thompson, ladies and gentlemen. That was kind of fun. Yeah, like being a part of the morning show. That was a total delight. I really wanted to hear more stories. I was sorry that we didn't have more time with him. You want the four-hour drive time with him. I could have definitely have taken the four-hour morning drive show. As always, we love talking to radio people, and they always have the best stories, and they know how to tell them well. Thank you, Mark Thompson, for stepping into our virtual studios. Thank you also to Kristen Spillers, who 
got Mark into our episode. So thank you very much, Kristen. It was nice of you to reach out and think of us. We have new episodes every Friday. And we also are on social media. How do you find us, Holly? At WDDIM Podcast and on YouTube at What Difference Does It Make Podcast. You'll find outtakes from this interview and many of our others. So let's wrap up this episode. Until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.